0: And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name. I am he and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet, for the nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes. In various places there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains but be on guard for they will deliver you to count over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the gospel must first be preached to all nations and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over Here is the Christ, or look, there he is. Do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all these things beforehand. Thank you. This is God's word.
1: You can be seated. Great job, Glenn. Thank you, brother. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, we recognize the diversity of Scripture and all the different genres and types and all the different ways you chose to make yourself known to us, and we count that a blessing. God, you have given us a full treasure chest of wealth to be able to comprehend and begin to understand who you are and what you've done and how you have chosen to make yourself known. And for that, God, we are grateful. God, many times we come to the Scriptures um, confident in our understanding. Other times we read passages like this and may have to pause and think for a moment, but you have made yourself clear. And so, God, we pray that same clarity, the same power, uh, that, you, uh, that when Jesus spoke these words to those four disciples, that same power and clarity would be given to us even today by the same Spirit you promised to those disciples. God, may your Word accomplish the work you intended to do and the people uh, that You have called to Yourself. May we be obedient children, may we endure, and may we be faithful as Your children today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. In just about every century since Jesus ascended back to the Father, there have been uh, people or groups of people who have been completely convinced that Jesus was gonna return during their lifetime. Perhaps you know some of their stories. Sometimes the stories can be humorous and the things that they come up with and elaborate schemes that they develop about Jesus' return. Other times it's less than humorous because it can be uh, life-altering, even tragic examples of real-world effects of poor theology. People have taken all kinds of different methods, whether using mathematics or astronomy or numerology or any other kind of ology people can employ to try to figure out when is Jesus coming back. And we get the the desire there. As Christians, we long to see Christ return. When Christ returns, all will be made right. There will be justice and peace like never before, and we will see the Father. We will be with God, and that is a very good thing. However, he's made it very clear we don't get to know when that's going to happen. People come to passages like the one we just heard after in Mark 13 and try to piece together details that they say, you know, we, we can't quite comprehend, but they're there to begin to develop some kind of timetable about God's return. Jesus' own disciples seems to think, seem to think that it would be soon. They, they ask this question, tell us when we will see these things and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? They thought Jesus was talking about the end of the world, and so the first question they want to know is, when? When is the end going to come? But Jesus was quick to tell them that when is the wrong question to be asking. For one, as we'll see next week, just a little further down, Jesus said in verse 32, no one knows. But even more, Jesus today, in this passage we're just, we just read, is offering a better question to ask as we await his return, there is a better and far more pressing question to ask than just asking when. Today we are diving back into the gospel of Mark. And if you've been around infinity, you know that our, our regular practice, our kind of steady diet, so to speak, from the pulpit, is that we practice what we call sequential Exposition—that That is, we expose the Scripture to you. We don't just impose our own opinions. We expose the truth of God's Word. And the way we, we do that, trying to be as faithful as we can, is we do that sequentially. We walk through books of the Bible. In the month of January, over three weeks, we walk through sequentially the book of Haggai, which is only three, two chapters long. We did it in three weeks. And that was manageable. But when you come to larger books of the Bible, like a gospel account... It's hard to do that all in one sitting. And so we have taken this in sections a few years ago. We preached Mark 1 to 8. Last year we preached 9 to 10. And this year, Lord willing, starting today here in chapter 13, we will finish with the resurrection on Easter Sunday. It might seem odd to jump in right here into verse 13, but we've taken these breaks at intentional points through the gospel. Mark 1 to 8, really the theme of that we called that series, Follow Me. Jesus started to, to describe who He is and what He's like through His teaching, through healing, through miracles. He began to show the world He is the Messiah. He is the King. And the end of chapter 8, He, tell, Excuse me. he tells His disciples, if you're going to follow Me, you must take up your cross. He told His disciples, yes, He is the King, but there's a pivot at the end of chapter 8 going into verse 9. He's the King who is headed to a cross. Christianity and Christ himself is a paradox of sorts. He is the king, and yet it looks like he was defeated, only to then rise and prove his kingship once and for all. So from chapter 9 in Mark through the end of the gospel, that's who we see Jesus to be, a king headed toward a cross. In chapters 9 to 12, Jesus' fame continues to spread. Chapter 11 is his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. He has celebrated and worshipped Hosanna. Here he is, the king has arrived. And yet the very next day he is in the temple turning over tables and cleansing and purifying it. That kind of direct contradiction to religious rulers is the kind of thing that gets you killed, which is exactly where Jesus knew he was headed. It's just a few days before the Passover and Jesus has been teaching in and around the temple. And at the end of Mark 12... He comments on a poor widow who gave all she had to the Lord. And he commends her faith for her giving of everything. The disciples at the end of chapter 12 are leaving the temple. and chapter 13, they leave it. And that's where we jump into this story, into Jesus' life, as they are leaving this temple. Somehow over the last few weeks or a couple months, really, this wasn't necessarily intentional on my part. We keep talking about this temple. We talked about Solomon when he built the temple back during Advent. And then we talked uh, in the month of January about Haggai as he prompted the people to rebuild the temple. And here we are, Jesus is leaving the temple and it's the same temple that Haggai convinced the people some 500 years before to rebuild. But since Haggai's time, that temple has gotten a pretty major facelift. King Herod had come in and raised a whole bunch of money and done a whole bunch of work. And this temple had expanded and gotten a lot fancier to the point where everybody who saw it in the ancient world was amazed by herod's temple it got bigger it got fancier it was covered in white stones a magnificent sight even the disciples are impressed chapter 13 verse 1 says look teacher what wonderful stones what wonderful buildings they're amazed by their eyes they're amazed at what they see at the temple and then jesus said something that was completely shocking to them he said do you see these great buildings there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus looking at this newly renovated, over four decades worth of work <laughs> temple, and he's saying it's all coming down. The disciples made their way, had made their way out of the eastern gates. They're up on the Mount of Olives. They're looking at this temple, and they are perplexed at what Jesus had to say. The question they had asked and the question we all want to ask is, okay, if that's going to happen, when is it going to happen? Because there's got to be some signs. Apparently there's some, th- something major going on. That, that is an unimaginable shift for the disciples to imagine this temple coming down. The first century Jewish world, everything would have revolved around this temple. It's where they came to worship. It's the came, where they came for their festivals. It's where they came to teach and to learn the ways of God. It was, a, as the as a kind of religious um, studies people talk about, an axis mundia, a connection between earth and, and heaven. It was the place that the whole world seemed to revolve around this one central spot. This, this connection between heaven and earth, everything was around it. If that's coming down, that must mean the world as we know it is about to end. And the disciples want to know, when? When is that going to happen? If this thing's coming down, the world's going to end, and we got to know, when will that take place? Jesus offered them a better question. He was a master teacher. He rarely answered directly a question that he was asked. Sometimes he pivots and asks them a question back or just reframes the question that they are asking. In this case, he gives them a better question, a better way of thinking. Far more pressing, far more significant to ask, rather than asking, when is the last day? The better question Jesus wants us to be asking is, will we remain faithful until the last day? Just a few decades after Jesus lived, the year 70 AD, Jesus' prediction came true. That temple was torn down. It was destroyed by the Roman Empire in a response to a Jewish revolt. In the historical records, uh, the accounts of that time, tell us that period was truly a a, a period that seemed like the end of the world for the Jewish people, especially around Jerusalem. This sermon, this teaching that Jesus gives in Mark 13, sounds like a preparation for the end of the world. There's a pretty solid case to be made. Most of the things he says here were fulfilled just a few decades after he preached it. It was future to the disciples, but most of it is now ancient history to us. That being said, God did not ordain this passage, this sermon here, only as a matter of historical record. It's been said that history may not repeat, but it sure does rhyme. Sometimes attributed to Mark Twain. I couldn't pin down for sure, but that does sound familiar. The things that Jesus was preparing his disciples for very well might repeat in some way, in some degree, to us. History rhymes often with the future. As Jesus was preaching about things to come to be fulfilled in the next few decades, I think there's a word here about our lifetime and maybe into our futures. The disciples wanted to know when the end was coming, and Jesus instead wanted them to be faithful. And that's important because what they were going to see was an incredible amount of suffering and trials and hardships, scary things, earth-shaking things, things that made it seem like the world as we know it is no longer the same. And Jesus wanted to reorient them to what, what really matters and to focus on what's really important. And so as they faced these trials, Jesus wanted them to understand this. Trials threaten discipleship. Trials threaten discipleship. More than being concerned about what the trials might mean about the end of the world, Jesus wanted them to be aware of what it means for today. And the reality of today is that when you go through a hardship, The question is, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to be faithful to God in the middle? Rather than just asking about the end times, the question is, can I obey the Lord today? Jesus' first response when the disciples ask when is to answer in verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. Trials are coming, he's saying. The point isn't when and what it all means. The point is you're going to face trials. So be ready, be prepared. Your main priority in the trial is not to try to predict the end, but to be faithful to Christ. Three different times Jesus warns his disciples in this passage about not being led astray. Twice he tells them to be on guard. He tells them not to be alarmed. and He tells them the one who endures to the end will be saved. That gives us a very clear picture of his main focus. It was endurance. It was standing up to what uh, the trial might bring you. The clear emphasis of his teaching is that trials threaten discipleship. So he says, don't, don't be caught off guard. Don't be unprepared. Don't, don't be surprised by the trials. Don't be confused when you have to go through some struggles. That's not abnormal. That's expected, he's saying. Later on, Paul would remind his protege a similar teaching. He would warn of other people. And he said, wage the good warfare, holding faith uh, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Jesus is warning His disciples, don't do that. Don't make a shipwreck of your faith just because there's a storm. Be prepared and stay true to the gospel. The danger for His disciples is that they knew this. He knew this trial that was coming and trials that will come to us. The temptation in that moment is just that it's too hard now. I don't want to follow Jesus. It's, it's, too, it's costing me too much, and I'm going to walk away. What does preparation for trial look like? I can tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like 400 cans of Vienna sausage and enough ammunition to take over zombies invading, right? That's not the kind of preparation Jesus has in mind. When Jesus is talking about getting ready for trials, it's not doomsday preparation. It's solidifying your faith to say, I want to be sure that I know Jesus and I'm willing to follow Him no matter what it costs me. Trials test outward discipleship. Is your discipleship and your faith in Jesus ready for a trial? He describes the different kinds, at least four different kinds of trials that are going to come their way in the middle of this temple being overthrown, in the middle of the trials that we go through, four different ways that that these, these trials may test our faith. The first he warns is against false teachers. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he. And that literally is I am, the great I am. Other people are going to claim to be Yahweh, claim to be the Savior, claim to be the Messiah. And he says they will lead many astray. Again, the, the end of the passage, verse 22, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. There are records throughout history, but especially around the time of the, the fall of the, the temple, where many people raised up to call themselves a new prophet or a messiah, a man named Thudius, a man called the Egyptian, a man claiming to be the Christ who was named Bar-Kochaba, or whatever that is, you know? The, the point is, at every time there was a trial, somebody raises their hand and says, I've got a word for you. Does that sound familiar? False teachers and false prophets arise at all different kinds. And now today, for just the, the amount of effort it takes to make a Gmail account, they can post it all over YouTube and get all kinds of followers and all kinds of revenue from every time everybody clicks on their video and make all kinds of information spread as fast as they want. YouTube and social media spreads it farther and wider than the ancient world. And he says, be on the lookout. People are going to say they have a word, they have a new revelation for, you, for God in your life, and we're going to tell them we've already read it. It's right here, and we're going to keep coming to his word. God has promised us in the middle of trials and hardships, there will be false teachers. Be careful. Be on the lookout. Don't let the hardship and the trial draw you into to following a path other than following the true Jesus. Promises of prosperity and of healing and wealth today are quite common, leading us off the path of a of a Christ who said take up your cross and follow me another kind of persecute another kind of of suffering he mentions are international conflicts and calamities he says don't be allowed uh, let off stray led astray by false teachers and then don't be alarmed verse 7 when you hear of wars and rumors of wars do not be alarmed this must take place but the end is not yet he's saying this these things are not proof that the end is here He's saying, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdoms. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. He says, there's going to be all kinds of hardship coming your way in the next few decades and for the rest of human history. Every century, every decade, it seems probably, has faced all kinds of wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. Pick a different spot on the globe and a different group of people, but there's still those things ongoing. In the 60s AD, so just a couple centuries, a couple decades after Jesus, before the temple was thrown down, there were brutal times of, of crushing of Jewish revolts. There were earthquakes in Jerusalem, Pompeii, Philippi, and all throughout. And one big one in Asia Minor. Jesus knew that in the lifetime of his disciples, there was going to be major conflicts, major calamities. And people might say, the end is here. And he says, just keep following me. Keep following Jesus. He says, this must take place, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet. We still see this. Anytime there is a significant global conflict, especially if it happens to evolve anywhere, anybody in the Middle East, right? Then somebody somewhere is going to say, see, the end is here. We know it now for sure. The end is here. Jesus says, just keep following me. Fear sells. You can make a lot of money if you can make a lot of people afraid. And if you can say, look, there's wars and rumors of wars. That sounds like Bible. Sure, the end time is here. He says these things must take place, but the end is not yet. We don't know when it's coming. Just keep following Jesus. He says, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. International conflicts and calamities are like a petri dish for growing false teachers. If there's some big calamity going on, then you can guarantee some incredibly bad teaching is going to happen. Take, for instance, an unprecedented global epidemic, pandemic. You just know that there's going to be incredible false teachings that grow out of that. Oh, wait, we remember that. That was 2020, right? There's going to be incredible false teachings. Oh, man, there's this vaccine. It's got new technology. I just mean all kinds of conspiracy theories. Look, just follow Jesus. You don't know when the end is coming. Just follow Jesus. These things are things that the the world wants to tempt you away from following what matters most. They are tests of your discipleship. And if the big stuff out there far away isn't enough of a test, he says it's coming home. Persecution. Verse 9, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and they will be beaten in synagogues. And they will stand, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Jesus knew the, the very four guys who had just asked him about when the end was coming. He said, look, guys, I, I, I'm God. You know, this is in the background. I'm God. I know everything. I know you, you don't need to worry about when the end is coming. But you four, you are going to go through incredible persecution for my name's sake. Stick with me. Don't stop following me. We, on this side of Jesus' teaching, get to read it in the book of Acts. Peter, one of the people standing right there in Acts chapter 5, is beaten and flogged and thrown into prison. And then he celebrates that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 12, one of the guys standing right there was James, the brother of John. And it records that he was killed by King Herod. Because he was following the way. Jesus says, you guys, you, the ones I'm talking to you, y'all are going to face persecution. But of course, it wasn't just the four of them. All of his disciples keep going through the book of Acts and Paul goes on trial over and over again. Stephen, one of the first people, one of the first deacons, he's martyred, the first martyr for the Christian faith. Over and over again, Jesus says, listen, the the tests you're going to face aren't just out there. They are life and death for you. When your literal life is on the line, are you willing to follow Jesus? Verse 13, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He says, look, we don't have to focus on predictions. Let's focus on endurance. Let's focus on sticking to following Jesus. Don't give up. A test is coming, but don't stop following Christ. False prophets, conflicts and calamities persecution and then we get one more category of suffering verse 14 starts this way when you will see when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be and that's the point in mark 13 where you go huh there is a consensus among commentators that mark 13 is the hardest chapter to interpret in mark and there's a consensus that verses 14 to 20 are the hardest section And there's a consensus that verse 14 is the hardest to interpret. And I stand here today to tell you it's hard to interpret. There's some debate, but this much is clear. Jesus is using language that the prophet Daniel had used three times in his prophecy, some 600 years, his prophetic writings, some 600 years before Christ. And what we know from that is probably the main thing he was talking about was a guy who would come 400 years after him, so 200 years before Christ, named Antiochus Epiphanes and he would do something pretty drastic. He was a Greek leader and he, would come, he came in to this Jewish temple and he did something awful. In the middle of it, he set up a, uh, an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a, a pig on that altar. And all of those things were an abomination to the Jewish people. A non-Jew, an altar to another god, and a sacrificed pig. And so Daniel saw that day coming and said, this is an abomination desolation. Jesus now is using that language and saying something like that is coming. Was he talking about the destruction of the temple and the Romans, who were also non-Jewish people, come and destroy it down? Probably. Was he talking about something more than that? Maybe. We don't know. But whether you take it as something that happened past to us, future to disciples, or still future to us, because there's an echo here of what the Bible talks about with an antichrist and Maybe that's in view. Maybe that's what Jesus had in mind. But either way, the point is still the same. It doesn't affect how the, the emphasis of Jesus teaching. He's saying there is something real bad that's going to happen. And even in that moment, keep following Jesus. He says it's going to be a time of suffering that is almost unimaginable. He says it's so hard. It's like people don't, don't even take You just got to run. Don't even take time to go get a cloak People who are pregnant, we're sorry, it's going to be hard for you. If it's winter, it's going to be hard. He's saying there's going to be hardship coming. And we have examples from around the time the temple was destroyed that sound a lot like this level of just unimaginable suffering for God's people. So whether it's only back then or still to come, the point is still the same. Keep following Jesus. I I think there's a word here, however you take verse 14, I think there's a word here for us as Christ followers, because whether or not this is, you know, future or not, for, for some of you, unimaginable suffering is not just something you've had to read about in history books. It is something you have lived. I, I know some of your stories. And you have gone through what seems like unimaginable suffering. For, for the disciples, for the, for the first century Jewish people, their world revolved around the worship at this temple. And when that got destroyed, it's like their whole world just collapsed some of you have had that level of suffering where the thing that that your world revolved around was destroyed. Whether it be the loss of a loved one, some earth-shattering career things, whatever it may be, there have been earth-shattering, almost unimaginable suffering that you have gone through. And it is a comfort to me that Jesus was not surprised by that. It's a comfort to me that Jesus knows that we would go through things like that. And then he would say, be prepared, be on guard, be ready, and don't give up on Jesus. These trials are a test of your discipleship. Will you continue to follow Christ even when the unimaginable happens? Can you keep following Jesus? In the middle of unimaginable suffering, I think there's at least two marks of hope right here in this passage. First one's pretty subtle, verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human beings would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. There's a reminder here that God chooses. God is at work. God has us in the palm of his hand. The good news of the gospel is that for all who have repented and believed, we've turned backwards and recognized God chose us, He saved us, He rescued us, and He doesn't forsake His people. He who began a good work, and you will bring it to completion. You can trust that God will hold on to you. So keep holding on to Him. There's another one, another comfort in the middle of our trials. We've said it's been a test of our discipleship, but what, what happens when something is tested? Like what happens to to metal when it goes through fire? It gets better, right? It gets refined. It has to get real hot in the process, but it gets more pure. It gets better. One of the things Jesus is doing in Mark 13 is to connect his disciples to what's about to happen to him in Mark 14 through 16. Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives and he's looking at Jerusalem knowing that in just a couple days that city would crucify him you want to talk about unimaginable suffering and unimaginable world shaking experience for his disciples they the disciples had been following this guy Jesus for years now and he was the one whom their whole world revolved around he was he was their temple he was the thing that they said, this, th- our life is banking on this guy. And then on that Friday, just a few days after Jesus gave this teaching, that guy that they're following is up on a cross being crucified. And their world is shaken. It is almost unimaginable suffering. Because they, they can't imagine, what, what do we do after this? How do we keep going? Surely this, we thought this was the Messiah the Christ, the Savior. And death is the exact opposite of what we thought was coming. We thought there was a victory. And instead we got a crucifixion. He was the one their wor- world revolved around and then he was crucified. But of course we know what came after Friday, Sunday. We know that chapter 16 of Mark comes after chapter 15. We know that for the very first time in history, resurrection came after crucifixion. The very thing that looked like it was gonna defeat Jesus actually went on to serve His purposes, what He intended all along. And that is the reality and the pattern of the gospel. Jesus was was connecting this for His disciples. He's saying, what's about to happen to me this week is gonna happen to you for the rest of your lives in some big dramatic ways around a couple decades from now, but for the rest of your lives, this is the pattern for Christians. Crucifixion leads to glory. Death leads to life. This is a pattern of the gospel that Jesus was gonna accomplish for us that we then would follow in for all of our life. Jesus is saying trials test discipleship. Don't be caught off guard when you're tested. Be ready, be prepared. And as you remain faithful, the almost unimaginable happens. When you endure trials, it doesn't just, sat, just just get by. When you endure trials, it actually serves to advance the gospel. Enduring trials advances the gospel. This is, this is all the way through the passage, but especially we get to verse 10. Verse 9, he says, For they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. He said, Persecution's coming. You're going to suffer But then listen to what happens, verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Why do the people persecute Jesus uh, after his, why do people um, persecute Jesus' followers after his ascension? What were they trying to do? There's this new group that's come along and they want to stamp it out. They're saying, these guys, they're causing too much trouble. We got to get rid of it. So we're going to beat them and tell them to stop. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, we're going to have to kill some of them and make it stop. And that still didn't work. The persecution that they intended to destroy Christians actually made it flourish. That's backwards. That's upside down. And that's what happens in our faith over and over again. The persecution that's meant to push Christianity into the ground actually sprouts up fruit and it multiplies. Verse 10, when he says, it will advance the gospel to all nations. It's the same language that we reference from the Great Commission, "Pontata ethne, all the nations, all the people groups. Just like Jesus said, the Great Commission will be accomplished as you're sent out from here. One of the ways that happens is through persecution. Just read Acts. When Stephen is martyred in Acts chapter 7, the very next chapter starts with, There was a great persecution that arose in that land. And it says all that was scattered as they went preached the gospel. When Paul and Silas are imprisoned, what looks like the very backwards thing of advancing the gospel. Now they can't go. They're stuck here. They're chained here. An earthquake happens. Walls are falling down. And they preach the gospel to a prison guard. And he and all his family come to know Jesus. Over and over again, Paul goes on trial over and over again and and people hear the gospel that have never heard before. The thing that looked like it was driving the Christians in the ground instead sprouts fruit and it multiplies. And when we endure trials, the same thing happens. It actually serves to advance the gospel rather than hinder it. Globally, where the church has been most persecuted is often where it most flourished. Perhaps you know the story of the church in China. 1950s, China decided they were going to get all foreign influence out of the country. So many missionaries, American missionaries, other European missionaries, kicked out of the country, and everybody was worried. It looks like, how, how can the church flourish? It, it was just barely beginning to get root here. But the church went underground, and decades later, as we began to figure out, it didn't die, it multiplied, and it grew. Christianity grows under persecution. Many of us have experienced or witnessed almost unimaginable trials. Maybe not the same kind of persecution in this way, but struggles and trials nonetheless. And many of us have had the joy and the privilege of watching the gospel advance through it. And I'll tell you, this church is an example of that. In just a short 13 and a half years or so, There has been an almost unimaginable amount of suffering and struggle and failure and hardships that that it just seems like if you were going to just close your eyes and just guess at what's going to happen, Infinity Church should not exist. And yet here we are, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of a Savior who died to pay for our sins so that we could spend eternity with Him. We're still preaching, and the gospel is still going out here and around the world. And I think it's not just in spite of our hardships, it's through it. That the gospel actually is advancing more because of the trials we have been through. We are a people living testimony of Jesus' own words. The, The gospel is going forth. The trials have tested us. And when we endure, the gospel advances. What tests are you facing What false teaching are you having to wade through right now? Where have you been alarmed by conflicts and calamities? Where are you persecuted? Where are you going through what seems like unimaginable suffering? See these things for what they are. They are a test of your discipleship. Will you continue to follow Jesus even when it costs you something? When you do, the world's going to notice. The world does notice. And even more than what it does to those around you, it will lead you to a sweeter enjoyment of our Savior. The gospel advances around you and in you when you go through trials and you endure them for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us to worship and allowing us to come before your word. Father, I just imagine for Jesus that day, just a few days before He was crucified, as He talked with Peter and James and John and Andrew, that Jesus knew, He knew what was to come. And I just imagine the joy He had in warning these guys about the persecution to come, but knowing they were going to make it. Knowing they would struggle, they would fail, and yet knowing that they would lay down their lives for the sake of His name. What joy, what, 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 a, what a proud heart Christ must have felt that day. And God, I just look around the room and know that you have that same joy for this group of people. God, you know the unimaginable suffering in the room. You know the hardships and the trials. You know the, the joys. And you know that for all those whom you have called, they're going to make it. Praise God. God, may we endure, may we hold fast, may we proclaim your name. God, we know there are ways we're gonna struggle, but God, hold us fast to you. Let us cling to you in hope, let us cling to you in joy. Even if it feels like the the world's been taken away from us, may we all the more rejoice in our Savior has overcome the world. God, lead us to you. Help us to trust you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing our closing song, you are welcome to come pray here at the altar with Nathan or myself, but I pray that you respond in faith today. Let's stand and let's sing.